Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here this morning, and we are in the third week of that, this message series, The Verse That Changed Everything. And I think it's a great series for a couple of reasons. One is that Adam came up with it, and he's probably watching. And so it's fantastic in that regard, but it, it does a couple of things because it gives us, through the summer when Adam's on sabbatical, some continuity, but it also gives each of us who get the opportunity to stand up here and share um, the opportunity to, to pick those times in our lives when a passage in Scripture has really impacted us greatly. So I'm going to do that this morning. Last week, Barrett answered the big question. And if you weren't here for Barrett and his message on John 3.16, which I think we could make the argument, that's the verse that changed everything for everybody. If you weren't here for that last week, I would really encourage you to go back and see it. It was a great message and one of the best things I've seen Barrett do. It was really, it was really good. Um, this week, I'm gonna answer a little bit narrower question, which is, what is the verse that changed everything at a point in my life? And to do that, I've gotta go back and give you a lot of context about my spiritual journey. And my daughter, Catherine, fresh from the greatest concert she's ever been to, really wanted, to re wanted me to refer to these stages as eras. If you didn't laugh right there, ask somebody who did. They'll explain. I'm gonna call them phases. I'm sorry, the slides were already made, Catherine. And eventually, we'll end up talking about the passage for today, which is Isaiah 61, verses one to three. And that's a passage that, in the transition from the second phase to the third phase, God used in my life in a profound way. And I'm excited to share that with you, but it's gonna take us some work to get there. So let's talk about phase one, which I've called compliant Christianity. And I call it compliant Christianity um, for a number of reasons. I was blessed to be born into a family with a mom and a dad who loved Jesus and who did their best to impress that upon me and my brother and my sister. And I was in church from nursery on. In fact, we never missed a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. The old line about any time the church door was open, well, my family was sometimes the ones that opened the church door. My mom was on the church board. My dad helped build parts of the church. And for every week of my 59 years, which I did the math, is 3,068 weeks. I've known a home church. And unless there was something significant that was keeping me away, I was in the service. And that's a legacy that I'm very happy about and I'm very thankful for. So the first 20 years or so of my life would fit under the heading of compliant Christianity. I said the sinner's prayer as a child. I was baptized at 12. 
I read missionary books and went to summer camps and helped teach Sunday school. I was the president of the youth group. Which is a fact that's a little bit less impressive when I tell you that we only had 12 kids in the youth group. But a fact that's more significant to me because eventually I married the vice president of the youth group. <laughs> and Christianity was the only worldview that I knew and I accepted it compliantly. The theme verse of this phase of my journey could be Proverbs 22, six, which says, direct your children on the right path, and when they're older, they won't leave it. And I know that when I prayed during this phase, it was often, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. And because I was an ornery young man, sometimes God is good, God is great, thank him for the food we ate. But as a child, I was directed on the right path and I'm really thankful to my mom and dad for that. Of course, as often happens, I became a teenage boy, and my teen years were marked with a seemingly endless cycle of backsliding and recommitment, and I would drink beer with my friends on Saturday nights and then teach Sunday school on Sunday mornings, and that cycle continued into college, and in my fourth year of college, the hypocrisy of my own life and the lives of so many of the students at my nice Christian college led to a major transition in my faith journey and the end of my compliant Christianity days. Phase two, critical Christianity. It was in the teaching assistant's office of Point Loma Nazarene College that I remember telling my friend Carrie Morgan that I'd reached a breaking point and I was done with hypocrisy. I told him that I wanted Christianity proven in my life and so I designed a test. Here's the test. I would pursue Christ as fully as I could, intellectually and intentionally, and if Christianity proved trustworthy, then I would continue to follow. But if it didn't hold up, then I wanted to leave it behind and get on with my life. I knew that up to that point, I'd mostly just gone along with the faith of my childhood. And now I was going to subject that faith to critical thinking. That's where the critical and critical Christianity comes from. I was gonna test the claims of the Bible and the claims of the church and see if they passed the test. A theme verse for this part of my journey might be Acts 17, 11, which says that the Bereans searched the scripture day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And I was searching to see if what I'd been taught was the truth. When I prayed during this phase, it often sounded like, God, help me to understand what you would have me to know. Now today, this phase of my journey might be called deconstruction. And a lot's been written about that phrase, and it can be difficult or even scary to think about. Now, I promise we're gonna get to Isaiah 61 soon, but first I'd like to take a few minutes and talk about this idea of deconstruction, because I think it's important. I found an article by a guy named Kyle Meyer in Ministry Matters that is very helpful in thinking about the subject. 
He acknowledges that this process can be either met with empathy and understanding or fear and hostility. And Meyer offers five tips for healthy deconstruction. And they line up with that decade of my journey pretty closely. And so what I'd like to do is go through his five tips and, and then share a little bit about how I experienced that. Tip number one, don't do it alone. Try to find a trusted spiritual director, mentor, or teacher to walk with you through this process. For me, several people filled this role. Early on, it was a guy named David Butler who recognized the journey that I was on and encouraged me to pursue truth wherever it led. Others entered and exited the scene, and thankfully, all along the journey, Pam was by my side. Although I think sometimes the journey scared her as well. Tip two, establish your foundation early. As easy as it is to begin with what you don't believe or won't practice, start by identifying what you do believe. As a chemist, the foundational stone in my reconstruction was the absolute need for a creator of the universe. I shared part of that story in an earlier message, and I'm happy to have further conversations about it if, if you're interested. But for this morning, I'll simply say that I became scientifically certain that something outside of the physical universe is absolutely necessary to explain the existence of the first living cell. Tip three, start from the outside and work your way in. Now here, one of the real dangers of deconstruction is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. By abandoning the central truths of Christianity because they're sometimes uncritically linked to debatable convictions and preferences of one kind or another. In the language here at First Free, I would encourage you to start the deconstruction with preferences and convictions that you find problematic. So the, the tip before was identify those things that are the foundation, and this tip is to understand what's convictions and preferences. And I'd encourage you, if, if that's a place that you're at, to go back and find our series on uh, Undivided that goes through that in five weeks of much detail. Tip four, try to differentiate between belief and behavior. Though someone's behavior is harmful, it doesn't mean their trust in Christ is invalid. I mentioned my college classmates and what I saw as hypocrisy. I realized that their behavior didn't line up with what you would expect from a Christ follower. At the time, I realized that my behavior didn't line up either. But wrong behavior doesn't invalidate biblical truth. This is a really important issue behind a great deal of the deconstruction that's taking place with young adults today. We know far too many examples of leaders who claim to follow Jesus, but then betray the trust that's placed in them violate their positions of authority, and have deeply hurt people. There's no excusing these behaviors. In fact, it's exactly those behaviors that point to the need for a savior. But this difference between behaviors and beliefs is crucial 
and it can make the difference between a productive deconstruction phase and a devastating loss of faith. Meyer's last tip, tip five, is choose to do this work with God and not to God. Invite God into this work of constructive deconstruction. Now, I'm thankful that my decade of deconstruction included God at every step. God is not afraid of a genuine search for truth. Deconstruction can be an important chapter in the life of those of us who follow Jesus. I know it was for me. I also know that it can be scary to watch your friends or your family or your kids challenging and questioning things that seem certain and settled for you. And I hope that, that these tips will help you if you find yourself in a critical Christianity phase of your own. I hope they'll be encouraging if you're walking with or watching your loved ones go through a process of deconstruction. Um, earlier this week, Pam pointed out a comment from C.S. Lewis that I think nails this point beautifully. Lewis says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. And I know that we understand God with a human understanding. And we must trust him to break and remake our understanding, sometimes often as he draws us closer to himself. Last week, Barrett was talking about the relationship between our understanding God and our trusting God. And he said, what if you could put your faith in Christ before you fully understand what he did? Before you fully understand who he is, before you have all your questions answered. My critical or deconstruction phase came to an end when I realized that I can never fully understand God. And yet, we're invited to put our faith in him fully nonetheless. Now that doesn't mean that I left critical thinking behind or that I left a desire to understand more of God behind. I still have plenty of questions that remain unanswered. And many of those answers may have to wait until heaven. But God doesn't wait for me to have all the answers before he calls me to serve him. And so my story has one more transition from critical Christianity to what I call consecrated Christianity. Phase three, consecrated Christianity. A story. In March of 2020, nope. In March of 2002, our family was on vacation over spring break in Arizona, and toward the end of that vacation in March, uh, a colleague called from Sigma Aldrich here in St. Louis and asked me, when are you gonna be back from vacation? I said, we'll be back on April 1st. And he said, great, come to the office with your passport packed for a trip to Germany. And honestly, before the moment that I got on the plane, I suspected that it was just an elaborate April Fool's joke. And it would have been a great April Fool's joke. But it turned out to be both a professional and a spiritual transition. In my first 10 years with the company, I'd focused on understanding, understanding our business, understanding our customers, understanding our markets, and understanding the trends that would be most important over the coming years. 
Now I was flying Germany, flying to Germany to represent the company in the potential sale of one of our businesses. The transition from understanding the company to representing the custom company was a significant step in my professional career. After the trip, in the airport waiting to fly back to St. Louis on a flight that maybe was divinely delayed, I was reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that for you now. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Now, you might recognize this passage. It's the section that Jesus quoted early in his ministry when he read the scripture in the synagogue in Nazareth. In fact, we find this in Luke 4, and I'll read that to you. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. and He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free. At that, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then they began to speak to him. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This passage, written by Isaiah and quoted by Jesus, is one of the clearest prophecies of the coming Messiah, and one of the clearest declarations by Jesus that he is, in fact, that Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord was on Isaiah as he prophesied to the people of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus as he taught in the synagogue, and in a way unlike any other. As I read these verses in the Hanover airport, I was struck by the thought that there were promises and invitations in these words that were for me. I memorized those verses, and I thought about them over the next few weeks. I shared them with members of the men's group back here at First Free, and eventually I identified three messages that seem specifically for me. They are, God's Spirit is on me. God's Spirit has work for me to do, and God's work through his people is a blessing to those who receive it. So let's talk about those. First, God's Spirit is upon me. That day in the Hanover airport, it hit me in a new way that the same spirit of God that was on Isaiah and on Jesus was also in me. Jesus promised the spirit. In John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. In Corinthians, Paul is addressing Christians who are straying into sexual sin with this reminder, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit 
who lives in you and was given to you by God. Now, I knew about all these scriptures that day as I was reading Isaiah, but I knew about them in the way that you might know about something and get the right answers on multiple choice. That day, it became so much more real as this passage did its work in me. The second realization from the Isaiah passage was that God's spirit has work for me to do. I was struck by the specific roles that Jesus pulled out when he quoted Isaiah. Bring good news to the poor, proclaim the release of captives, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. These roles were Christ's to claim. I recognize that throughout scripture, the promise of work for Christ's followers is clear. Paul says, He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned for us long ago. Peter says, God has given you each a gift from, each, from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. I was in a professional transition being asked to represent the company in important decisions. And I realized that a similar transition was happening in my spiritual life as well. I was moving from an intentional effort to understand Christianity to embracing an invitation to represent Christ in the work that he prepared in advance for me to do. Now, figuring out what that work was became an intentional focus for me. Soon after that trip to Germany, I was included in Chuck Colson's first year-long study focused on how Christians can live out a biblical worldview. It was called back then the Centurions Program, and I think largely that's because there were a hundred of us in the group. Today, it's called the Colson Fellows Program, and it's in its 20th year. And you may not know that First Free hosts the local cohort of the Colson Fellows Program, which is still a year-long study to look at how Christians can live out a biblical worldview. And they start their next cohort next month. Um, and I was told this morning that there may still be some spaces. So uh, if you're interested, find me after. Um, but I went through that program and I spent a year studying how, what does it look like to live out Christianity as a representative of Christ? I also studied to become a certified executive coach. I saw how coming alongside people in work challenges and in life challenges really fit how I was created and how the experiences that I'd had had prepared me. I was starting to see what I was intended to do. And in the 21 years since that trip to Germany, I have seen God work in me and around me and sometimes through me in some remarkable ways. I'd like to share one example. In 2011, I became convinced that I should leave Sigma Aldrich and work as an executive coach for a year for free, serving the executive directors of several nonprofit organizations. And I remember waking up at 4 a.m. one August morning, very clear about what that year would look like. I remember calling Pam, who was out of town with our oldest, and telling her that I planned on quitting my job and working for free. Yeah. Surprisingly, that wasn't her response. <laughs> she was incredibly supportive. She listened 
And at the end of our conversation, she said, if you're gonna be working with nonprofit executive directors, then maybe you could reach out to an organization called Visiting Orphans. Pam and Lauren had just recently gone on a trip to China that was facilitated by Visiting, or visiting Orphans, and, and she really loved the organization and encouraged me to reach out to them. I asked her if she knew who the director was, and she said no, and I said I'd look into it. But I also knew that there were over a million nonprofits in the United States, and that that made the chances of me ending up working with visiting orphans approximately one in a million. I also remember that when I woke up at 4 a.m., I knew who the three people were that I would ask to be part of a personal board of directors for this year-long experiment. And one of them was a guy named Rob Dublin, who lived in Nashville. And so later that day, I called Rob and explained what I was doing. I asked him if he'd be part of a personal board of directors to hold me accountable, to make sure that I didn't waste that year, to make sure that somebody was asking me, are you spending too much time playing words with friends and not doing what God's called you to do this year? And he quickly agreed to join me. And then on that call, he said that he had just begun meeting with a group of nonprofit executive directors there in Nashville. And maybe I would like to come down and speak to them and see if any of them would be interested in working with me during that year. And I said, that sounds great. Who are you meeting with? And the first organization that he named was Visiting Orphans. Now, I've only experienced God's kind of confirmation in supernatural ways a couple of times in my life. That morning as I talked to Rob, I knew that God was in this and directing my steps. Over the course of that year, I had an opportunity to work with about a dozen executive directors, including the new executive director of Visiting Orphans. And as she refined the strategy and priorities of the organization, and she tuned it to bring God's mercy and love to children that the world had literally abandoned, I got to partner with her that, in that in thinking through that. And I loved working with her in this. In June of 2012, Lauren and I traveled with a group from Visiting Orphans back to China. And there I was introduced to an amazing three-year-old who would soon become my son, Lucas. God was working in me and around me and through me. And it was a joy. The third thing in the passage from Isaiah that impressed me is that God works through those who follow him to bring blessings to the people that God loves. God promises to exchange beauty for ashes, blessings for mourning, and praise for despair. And he invites us to join him in this work, and then almost as a bonus, as we serve others, we experience joy in ways that no other pursuit can match. My friend Katrin Bosch, a recent high school graduate and the star of her high school basketball team, told our youth group about her experience leading worship in Kid Connection and working on student mission trips. She said, if you would have told me that I would experience more joy 
from leading hand motions for kids and roofing in 100-degree weather in Memphis than I would from sports, I would have told you you were crazy. And yet she did. And I, too, have experienced that joy. In fact, my prayers over the last 20 years have sounded much more like, God, thank you for the work that you've given me to do. Thank you for working in me and through me. May all of the glory go to you. As we wrap up, I have two important disclaimers. It's a pleasure to share my story with you, but I want you to understand that these three phases or eras that I describe are much cleaner in a 30-minute message than they were over the past 50-plus years, 59 years. My daughters, when they heard this last night, challenged me on using the phrase 50-plus, saying that's being pretty generous. <laughs> in addition to everything else, God has given me a crowd to keep me honest. Over the last 59 years, even over the last 20, I've had cycles of weaker devotion and stronger distractions. I struggled with understanding and obeying, and in the past 20 years that I call consecrated Christianity, there have been plenty of times when I've lost the thread of what God's doing in me or through me, mostly because it's still so easy to be focused on myself. God's not done working with me, and for that, I'm thankful. Second, I want to be clear that my story is not your story. My phases are not necessarily your phases. God created us as individuals, and he works in us individually. The phases I've described may not match your experience at all, but I hope that maybe you saw how God's working in your life in relation to what I've shared this morning. To paraphrase a distinction that Adam frequently makes, my story is definitely descriptive, but certainly not prescriptive. That said, let me encourage you. God's spirit is in you if you are a follower of Christ. God's spirit has purpose and a work for you to do. And that work is for the glory of God and for the blessing of those he loves, including you. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the the way that your word worked in my life 21 years ago and for the way that you love and direct your children. And I pray, Father, that, that this morning, as we listen to your words and we seek your voice, that we would be grateful for the work that you give us to do, that we would be open to you working in us and through us, and that God, every glory, every praise would be directed to you in your name.